0: This chapter 11, we can follow along with it up there on the screen. Um, I'm going to have a little bit of a different sort of an intro this morning. I want to go back and hit on a little bit of last week's text. But this passage that we're looking at this morning is actually the exact opposite of last week's passage. Last week we looked at the commandment to Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This week, we are going to see what happens when God gives a command and his people answer with a hearty no. Before we dive into our text, I would like to jump back into last week's text for a moment to clarify something that I should have said last week, and a few people had questions about regarding being fruitful and multiplying. I've had several people um, ask questions and point out That the direct context in Genesis 9 when it refers to multiplying is referring to having children, i.e. repopulating the earth. And I wanted to go back and address that. First of all, well done. Those of you who pointed that out, I'm proud of you. There's nothing greater for a pastor's heart than to hear that people sitting under the teaching are going back to the word of God and studying the word on their own rather than taking man's word for it. Even people that you trust and who do their best to preach the Word of God with accuracy and great care are prone to mistakes, and uh, I'm humbled anytime that that is pointed out, um, because I try to take God's Word with the utmost seriousness. So thank you for an opportunity to grow along with you. So let me just affirm something, and then I will get into uh, a little bit to set up our text today. In the immediate context of last week, Be Fruitful, Multiply, Fill the Earth, The the commandment is absolutely talking about having children. So let me clarify a bit. Christians should, if medically possible, seek to have children and pour the gospel into those children. Christians should advocate for foster care and for adoption. And I am so, so grateful and humbled by a church full of people that have taken the commandment so seriously. It is our honor to be a part of a church body filled with people who have um, sought to raise their families in the gospel, who have um, sought to expand their families through adoption, through foster care, because they take this mandate to raise up children in the truth of God's word by any means very seriously. And I'm humbled by the oversight of not mentioning that last week when it's something that is so near and dear to my heart. So let me bring a word of correction and encouragement to last week's message, I should have spent more time in the immediate context of the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and how God is honored by Christian families making babies and passing on that faith to Jesus. Um, Well, now that I've said that, the reason I use the word immediate context is because there are many passages in the Bible that theologians refer to as having a near-fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Isaiah seven fourteen. What is Isaiah 14? Anybody got that off the top of your head? It's the Christmas promise, right? The virgin birth. Only if we were using the same principles as I was just saying, and only looked at that passage in its immediate context, it actually is not mentioning. Uh, it's, it's a commandment against King Ahaz, saying that the Assyrians are going to come in and wipe out this rebellious nation, Um, but then he was speaking through that to a secondary context about this Messiah that would come and be born of a virgin. Joel 2 is a fascinating one when you talk about near and far contexts because Joel 2, if you read it in its original context, it was talking about a locust plague that was going on at that time in Israel, but then Peter does something really fascinating. He quotes it at the sermon in Pentecost and then uses the words, today, this has been fulfilled in your midst. But then you go back and read Joel chapter 2, and it's talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord, and it's referring to the eschatological time when Jesus will return to the earth. We're getting closer to the actual topic of Pan, Abraham was told that he and Sarai would give birth to many children, too numerous to count. And Abraham took the near fulfillment so literally that he even made foolish mistakes to try to help God along by having Ishmael. There's a second layer to that commandment, which means the Jewish people being birthed from Abraham. But then Galatians gives it another layer and says that we Christians are the children of Abraham. Again, near and far fulfillment. I should have done what I just did right there, the hard exegetical work last week. So I do emphatically agree that the near fulfillment of the commandment in Genesis 9:1 and 9-7 was to populate the earth by having babies. But then by chapter 11, which is what we're in this morning, we see that it's also more than that. How do I know that? Well, a couple of reasons. Chapter 11 shows that there is a bigger problem associated with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. These people were having tons of babies. How do I know that? Because we're going to see that out from Genesis 11 comes every people group every tongue, and every nation. Um, how many of you out there think that there's a lot of different people groups out there? Um, okay, so they were having babies. That's not what God is judging here, man. Um, so uh, I should have mentioned that last week. But you see by the time you get to this chapter that he's doing something beyond that with that commandment. Every language. How many of you can speak every language and every dialect out there? Um, John Scalambro is coming on staff next month, Ken. Um, but that's the only person I know that can know. He speaks like four. But um, There must have been a lot of children for this to happen. Yet yeah, God still has issue at something that was not being obeyed in the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the even bigger reason... We know that it's more than that is because by the time that we get to next week's chapter, chapter 11, God is completely spiritualizing this idea of children to someday include disciples of Jesus. We know that because the Great Commission leans on this language. And then specifically, Galatians 3.29 says, if you belong to Christ, you are the children of Abraham. And the last reason that I know that there is both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment in all of you believe that already is because how many of you have done this father abraham and many sons and what do you say and only the jewish people are one of them only the ones in the direct context and me too no i am one of them and so are you so let's all praise the lord right arm left arm i don't remember the rest i think that was the macarena not the father abraham song but um 90s flashback there um so putting it all together what I should have said is Galatians 9 or Genesis 9 is referring to having babies and I should have paused there and then said but it is referring to that but that's not all it's referring to. I hope that helps. And again I am humbled by you guys loving me enough to point out something where I can correctly go back and address the scriptures um, and hopefully do justice to that. But what's going on here in Genesis 11? Well, it's the opposite of the command in Genesis 9. Genesis 9 was about building God's kingdom, Genesis 11 is the anti kingdom, which is what we are calling our message today. So verses 1 through 3 are kind of like the lead up to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Look at the first three verses. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Well, you we can see dangers on the horizon when we look at the first three verses, but they're not doing anything wrong yet per se. So what's happening is they were supposed to spread out after they were removed from the garden and then... They have the flood, and they're supposed to spread out and multiply again, but the multiplication seems to have hit a stall here, and they are saying, let's stay here and just live as one. That is actually repeated twice in that. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that John Lennon's Imagine is the dumbest piece of hippy-dippy garbage ever written in the history of the world, um, john lennon fell into the same exact lie that the babylonians fall into in this passage believing that the world could just come together and live as one if we all gave peace a chance um, and trying to do that without imagining that there's a jesus christ Um, it's just not possible because of our sin nature it's why communism doesn't work folks because If we all come together and you have more, I want yours and I want to know why I have less. The only thing that can make sinners live as one is going to be the return of Jesus Christ coming and setting up his divine kingdom here on this earth. That's it. That's the only way. So if he wants to imagine all of these ways that don't include that, well, then he is imagining something that is broken from its foundation and just doesn't work. Verse 4 is when the train starts to go off the rails. So look with me at verse 4. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the earth. So the first indication that they had gone off the rails should be the usage of five personal pronouns in one verse. It's very clear what their concern is by the time you get to verse 4. I, me, my, we, and ourselves. That's their concern, okay? The Lord is not even on their radar by the time they get to this point. Any Thing that the Lord had commanded was so far in their rearview mirror by the time they get to the plains of Shinar. All they wanted what was is what was best for themselves, which is pretty ironic, because the best thing for themselves would have been to simply follow the Lord's instruction and commission. But unlike most cases when most people go off the rails, there's a moment where they thought they knew better than what God was asking of them, and they were somehow going to improve upon God's commandments. And this is really at the heart of almost all forms of rebellion. Most people who profess to be Christians that I've seen walk away from the faith have all started with the same jumping off point that we see here. Yeah, I know what God has said, but I am going to choose this because this is the thing that makes me happy. And the ironic part of that is decisions that are crafted out of that kind of decision-making never end up leading to long-term happiness, ever. I have yet to meet a Christian in my 18 years of faith. And um, there's those of you that have been saved longer than I've been alive, so maybe you have met somebody that would fall into this category, but I seriously doubt it. I've yet to meet somebody who was claiming to be a Christian, who chose rebellion over obedience, become a more joyful person as a result of their decisions. Not a single one. I always say that nobody has ever come back to me when I've seen them and they've just kind of left the faith and they're like, dude, you thought this Jesus thing was cool? You should try life Without Jesus, man, like I am just rocking every single day, and things are just so cool in my life right now. It doesn't happen. They know they're living in rebellion, no matter how much they might be trying to hide it. One of the big indicators that somebody, or maybe even yourself, because I don't want to assume that it's just out there somebody or maybe even yourself is headed down this road is reflected in speech just like we see in this passage you begin to hear the trinity of stupidity begin to take over all of their decisions i me and my become their focus like you see in verses three and four i just need to do this for me so that i will be happy because as the animals said it's my life and i'll do what i want um If you followed the life of Eric Burden, you would know that that did not end well for him. Um, At this point, a simple question like, what does the Lord desire is far from their hearts, just like it was from the people of Babel. And there's three big problems going on that expose their hearts, and that's what I'm going to get into with our remaining time here today. They tried to build a monument to their own power. They tried to make a name for themselves. And they tried to create a social structure that would make sure that they were not scattered all over the earth. So first, let's look at this idea of making a monument to themselves. There's a couple of views of what was meant by trying to make a tower to the heavens, like it says here in verse 4. There's this view that people were taking their first attempt at making a man-made religion and trying to to reach God through religion. I'll bet you many of you were taught that view. That is a viable view. And then there's a second view that people were simply making a monument to their own power, ingenuity, and might. The first view, that they were making man-made religion and trying to reach God through religion is a view that has its merit. They're clearly going along with this system of thought that is in direct defiance to God's commandment to multiply and fill the earth. The language that they use is very similar to what the serpent did in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. They're calling into question God's word and coming up with a different law that sounds like, but also runs contrary to to God's law. And their objective is stated very clearly. They say, let's make this tower whose top reaches to the heavens. The second view, that they're simply making a monument to their own power and ingenuity and might, also is a view that has its merit. One of the biggest reasons behind this view is the over usage of personal pronouns like I just pointed out earlier. And most Hebrew scholars will point out that the term heavens here is not speaking of heaven in the way that you and I think of that today. The term heavens in the Old Testament is a very generic term that often just means the skies or celestial bodies or the void between the earth and the spatial realm. In fact, You may have even picked up on this. I'll bet you that you have. Um, The fact that our developed Christian concepts of heaven and hell are rather absent from the Old Testament, aren't they? I'm not saying they're non-existent. I know that you can go to Daniel. I know the Psalms that you can go to to begin to develop and construct that theology. But it's certainly, we would all have to say, less developed than it was later by the Christian authors of the New Testament. I choose the second interpretation because of God's response to them in verse 6, where he says, And the Lord said, Behold, they're one, and the people all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do, and nothing they propose to do from now on will be impossible for them. Look, I don't think that God was nervous that these people would be able to achieve anything that they wanted and somehow pose a threat to him. I don't think that he was nervous that they would be in some way competing with him. After all, look how easy it was for him to completely stop the progress of what they were doing. I mean, it's just like he blinks and then all the people are spread out all over the earth later in the passage. It doesn't give a ton of detail in the passage about how he does it, but it's just the plain reading of the text is this took very little effort on God's part to accomplish what he is about to do. When you have a massive view of a gigantic God, the idea of something being difficult for him is laughable, isn't it? It's like when people talk about the battle of Armageddon. It's not going to be a battle. The armies of the earth are going to align themselves against the Lord until the Lord decides that they will not anymore, and then it's over. That is not what we think of when we call a battle. It's just the Lord will come in thunderously and victoriously. Either view, though, kind of takes you to the same place. These people were trying to make a monument that demonstrated their own self-sufficiency and reliance on their own ability. They were more concerned with making monuments to their own fading glory than they were of God's amazing glory. And this thing was clearly supposed to be a monument that reflected and projected, look how great we are. And it was projecting the thoughts that they had about themselves to the world so that everybody else will know how great I really am. And it's ironic that this thing that they built Because they thought it would give them stability, ended up being their undoing and created total chaos out of it. It shows how fleeting and futile it is to try to put down tent pegs on this earth and be able to believe that we are building something built to last by our own ingenuity rather than sowing into the incorruptible kingdom of God. And unfortunately, we still see this today. I could give you a gajillion examples. Throughout history, you ever see the shirt that says, um, Nietzsche, God is dead. God, Nietzsche's dead, you know. um, (laughs) Or how about the French Enlightenment? Tearing down churches and building statues to the goddess of human reason within their churches. Trying to say, look at what we have done. Check out our own ability. But even more unsettling is how often we see this in the church, so many ministries are done in the name of Jesus, but are actually monuments to man. It seems like in recent years, is anybody else getting this? That in recent years, God has just been exposing that kind of junk at a rate that is unprecedented in history. It seems like every single week, another megachurch pastor is going down, doesn't it? We're seeing countless examples of man falling and entire movements just being wiped out with one broad stroke. And it has to make you stop and wonder who that movement was ever built around to begin with if you take the man out of it and the movement collapses when the man is absent. man, I say to you all the time, If I leave here and should get hit by a bus, still come here and worship the same way next week. Because this is not about any one person. It's about Jesus. And when you build something on Jesus, it's built to last. So let's look at the second idea of making a name for ourselves. Look, being named in the Bible is a massive, massive concept especially in the book of Genesis. I mean, naming was connected to the idea of dominion or the idea of mastery. So this phrase was not used by accident when they said, let's make a name for ourselves. Think of all the times that it's used just in Genesis. I'll just give you a couple. Adam is naming all the animals to show that he had dominion over them in the garden. In Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham to show that he will be the father of many nations. Jacob went from being the deceiver to being Israel, the one who wrestles with God and prevails. Even in the New Testament, you have Jesus changing the name of Peter after the confession of the gospel. And he says, I say to you that you are now Peter. And on this confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or how about Revelation 2.17 when he says, and I gave them a new name written on a white stone a name that nobody was able to know except for me who gave it. God's the one who does naming. Aside from the garden, when the world was perfect, he allowed Adam to have dominion, but Adam blew that. But the idea of naming is directly correlated to mastery. So it might appear subtle that they were saying, um, let's make a name for themselves, but they're actually stating quite a bit. They're essentially declaring, I am emancipated, And I want to make my own dominion and decisions. They're attempting to throw off the yoke of God's mastery. They're declaring independence from the Almighty. They're essentially shaking their fists at him and saying, we don't need you. We can do this ourselves. Can you see why this passage ends up being so offensive to the Lord by the time we get to verses five and six and he has to bring judgment to this? Brothers and sisters... This is why gospel-centered preaching of identity in Christ is absolutely critical in any Christian pulpit. We are not out there trying to make a name for ourselves and forge our own identity. God gave you an identity in Christ. God himself made a name for ourselves to bring glory to himself. I don't think that was good grammar, but I think it was good theology. When we forget to ground our identity in Christ, we can begin to fall into the same junk that these guys fell into. I need to achieve this in order to make a name for myself. I need to be a workaholic so that I can go out and accomplish something so I can make a name for myself. I need to find spiritual sounding ways to boast about myself in Facebook while also putting other people down at the same time so that I can feel better about myself. And at the root of it is so much self. There's so much flesh going on in that. And you could tell when you're falling into that because criticism becomes your undoing. It's undermining the facade that I have tried so carefully. I have sculpted this facade more carefully than Michelangelo sculpted the statue of David. So how dare you say anything that would go against my well-sculpted facade? You don't need to make a name for yourself when your identity is secure in Jesus. Then you could say the rest of the world don't know who you are but Jesus does. He named me, and that's enough. Let's look at the third part of their flaw, which was let's do everything we can to make sure that we do not get scattered throughout the earth, and that's not me giving you a summary of what they said. That is their own Words. They're building their own little utopia so they could remain in one place. The Hebrew here is actually intentionally recalling the commandment to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And for them to shape their motivation with such exact language that parallels the Hebrew so exactly means they were very familiar with the commandment that God gave to them back in Genesis chapter 9. They knew what God was asking of them. They were just very okay with saying no. But their no was so much more offensive because what they're actually doing is taking God's word, twisting it, and then trying to use it against him. Wasn't that the serpent's tactic in the garden? Did he truly say That you cannot eat or touch of this tree? Wasn't that Satan's game plan again when he saw Jesus in the wilderness? If you are truly the son of God, then why don't you? Hey, didn't God say that if you? Guys, stop and think about this for a second. When we begin to twist god's word, to spiritualize justifying, giving a no, we are in a dangerous, dangerous spot. Let me put it as bluntly as I can to you. God didn't lead you to spiritualize giving him a no that goes contrary to his word. We just saw who is responsible for twisting scripture. I'm not saying every time that somebody does that that Satan is the one leading it because I don't want to give Satan that much power. Your flesh is pretty powerful as well. Um, I've been looking forward to this passage because to me, this is one of the most relevant passages in the Bible to the modern Christian church and the mission that we are called to. Churches have become buffets full of programs for Christians who have already eaten too much from buffets full of programs. We have done such a great job creating a structure that ensures that we never, ever have to leave the church or get ourselves dirty by being in the presence of sinners. I remember when the Lord showed to me that I was a phony, and I was the Pharisee in this uh, from the passage that was read earlier during worship that just jumped over the bruised and beaten man on the way to Jericho because I can't take time to help you up and bandage you and do what Jesus said was actually the work of a neighbor because I've got a Bible study to go to. I've got another church function to go to. I can't go and play softball in a regular league because I stink at softball. So I'm just going to go play in a Christian league. And um, you know then I don't have to rub elbows with sinners. You remember how much I stunk at softball. That's why you're cracking up over there. Very funny there, Frank. Um, There there is no denying that this is one of the most missiological texts in the whole Bible. Each time I look at this text, I can't help but think of Keith Green's song, Asleep in the Light, that the world is sleeping in a dark, that the world just can't fight because the church is asleep in the light. How could you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and the church can't even get out of bed. It's a pretty powerful song. Because for the most part, the church is very okay with building structures to ensure that we can remain asleep in the light while the world flounders in darkness. I want to point out um, ten observations about the call to live as missionary people. First of all, churches have gone too long treating the Great Commission as if it was optional. Secondly, churches have gone far too long with the belief that mission is something out there that we write a check and we give money to rather than realizing that God placed you right here to be God's missionary people in this town. Churches have gone too long To make it seem like living on mission is an option for some people in the body, but that disobeying it is also a viable option for people in the body. Churches have gone too long believing the lie that you can grow in maturity without growing in mission. Look, knowing facts and being able to recite facts about the Bible does not make you a mature Christian. Obeying the Bible does. Number five, churches have gone too long where they've structured their ministries around themselves rather than the people out there who are in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number six, churches have gone too long with being more concerned with keeping the lights on in the building than they are about the souls who live around the building without the hope of the gospel. Number seven, churches have gone too long where they have measured growth by shuffling Christians from one place to another rather than seeing kingdom growth of non-believers becoming believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number eight, churches have far too long preached about heaven and hell and functionally give very little effort about whether the people in their own backyard are going to one of those places. Number nine, churches for too long have treated the Great Commission as if it's the Great Optional Commission. And 10, churches for too long have treated teachings like this, where all of God's people are called to live as missionaries as if somebody is saying something radical. Brothers and sisters, this is not radical. This is Christianity. That's it. This is the natural conclusion of the gospel. God set us free so that we in our freedom could go tell those who are still in captivity to bondage to sin that there is freedom to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. This is not an optional call. If you're sitting there thinking, hey, I hear what he's saying, but I'm already deconstructing it in my mind and giving myself a reason to say no, I just want to ask you why? Why would you think that way? Either we can look at being missionaries as a privilege of the few or we can walk in obedience and realize that it is the calling to every single person who bears the name of Christ. And I just want to say one more thing before moving on. If all of the people and all of the Christian churches who believe in the gospel believed this and lived it out, it would change the world. Or better said, God would change the world through the faithful preaching of the gospel. And you know what that's called? It's called revival. Have you, ask your heart this. I'm I'm being serious. Like, stop and ask your heart this. Have you given up hope that we might see revival right here in our lifetime? I mean... God is not a respecter of man. Our God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Jonathan Edwards was no different than you. He was just a skin suit with bones who preached the gospel and people responded. George Whitefield was no different than you. D.L. Moody was no different than you. The Apostle Paul was no different than you. God could use just a simple little army of obedient soldiers to be able to facilitate revival. And man, I don't... I don't want to get to the end of this life without seeing a revival. I've, I've begged for it so many times. I've said, God, this can't be it, where we look around and 3% of the people in the most densely populated state in the country profess the name of Jesus. That's pathetic. I mean, this should do something to us. It should drive us to our knees when we think about it. There is good news, though. Acts 2 shows Babel in reverse. In Babel, they were all together and had one language and were confused about God's mission. At Pentecost, they were all together with different languages. But then the Holy Spirit brought them together and gave understanding to all of those different languages that were represented. And the Greek term that's used here for Babel is actually the Greek Uh, or the, the Hebrew term rather is the Greek equivalent to glossolia, which is used of the tongues that brought everybody together to preach the gospel and hear the gospel in the same language in Acts 2. Once again, God showing the ability of what man was intended for. Only this time, instead of remaining in one place, those early Christians took the gospel back with them to their own countries of origin. And then God uses some very um, similar language that we see somewhere else in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city, the tower which the children of man had built. Where else do we see similar language of God coming down to walk in our midst? Brothers and sisters, it's not because God couldn't see from heaven. He wasn't like, I better go down there so I can get a better view of this tower thing because my view is obstructed up here by St. Peter's Gate that doesn't exist. Um <laughs> this is grace that in the midst of their sin God came down to walk amongst the people. And let me point out to you that this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. This is why the Father sent Jesus to walk amongst and be a friend of sinners. And that wasn't just true two thousand years ago. Jesus still walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own. Jesus is still walking amongst dirty sinners, and he would walk with you if you just asked him. If you said right now, Jesus, walk with me, I promise you he would. He would in no way cast out a sincere plea for you to know him. So far in Genesis, we've two, seen two instances where it said that man walked with God. Well, now this is the second instance where it says that God came down and walked with sinful man. Oh, what amazing grace we see. And then we see a summary of the situation. I'll, uh, I'll wrap this up pretty quickly. It says, the Lord said, behold, they are one. Behold, they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose will be impossible for them. Let's go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth, and they left the building, the city. Therefore, it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. So... To be clear, when God says that nothing would be impossible for man, he was not marveling at man's ingenuity and technological advancement and saying, like, wow, we better mess this up because these guys are going to be a real threat if we don't do something about it. He was speaking of the depths of the sin in depraved man's hearts. And he's saying, there's no depth to how low they'll sink if I don't come down and put a stop to this. How many of you are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ when he looked at you and said, there's no depth to how low Pete will sink, Marcy will sink, Andrew will sink, if I don't come in and go and invest and just pursue them with the hounds of heaven until they have to relent. I am so grateful that the Lord knew that there was no depths that I would not go in my rebellion against him. So he loved me enough to pluck me out of it when I was not capable of plucking myself out of it. It kind of reminds me of World War I. Before the war, people constantly spoke about this notion of progress. You could read books from that era. People talked about how progress was going to become the new God and it was going to kind of usher us in until people saw where their progress had brought them as they tried to put back together a world that was destroyed by the sinful progress of man. It's the same thing that we see right here in Babel. And then you see God's judgment, which is very simple. He he does what he's always done. Jesus commands us to go. It should be the exception if we stay. So he said, look, you're going to go. I didn't give you a vote in this. You're going to go out. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. And if you don't, then I'll send you myself. God did for them what they refused to do for themselves. That is the judgment that we see here. And before we get to application to close, we once again, in the end of the passage, I won't read all of it for time's sake, but you please do, we again see one of the most repeated themes in Genesis, that where there is judgment, There is always hope. You see the descendants of Shem coming after this. And we've already looked in the previous passage that that would be the line through which the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent would be coming through. And then at the end of it, we see it ending with the line of Abraham. It's like in the middle of the darkest darkness, God pulls a Motel 6 and says, we'll keep the light on for you. And that's what he does, man. He just keeps a light flickering. Sometimes things seem so bleak. But no matter how bleak, it never gets to the point for a Christian that all hope is lost. So a little bit of application as we close. Do we want to live our lives building monuments to man or being disciples of Jesus Christ? Do we want to make a name for ourselves? Or do we want to ground ourselves in that precious identity that is ours in Christ Jesus? God has called us to scatter and multiply. We can either seek to make ourselves comfortable in one place, or we can obey. Brothers and sisters, this life is a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Why would we try to make a vapor comfortable when we know that eternity is waiting for us? on the other side and we have the opportunity to sow into that eternity while we live in the midst of this vapor number four i just want to ask you are there any areas in your heart where you're justifying giving god your no and lastly do you see hope even in the midst of the most bleak of situations i'm going to pray and then we'll take the lord's supper together god thank you that you always leave hope even when things look hopeless. God, I pray that we would realize down to the depths of our being that we come here to be fed by you so we can go out into the world and be your missionary people and tell a people without hope of the gospel that our God reigns, that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, and that he wants a relationship with them. Lord, thank you that you have come and abided with sinners and granted us life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.